Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to The Reluctant Agilist. Christine Lee's here today, and we're going to talk about a guy that a lot of people think is Sinestro, and I want to argue that he's the Green Lantern. Um, so, Christine, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me, Dave. Um, would you mind giving these folks a little bit about your background before we jump into our main topic? Um, sure. So uh, presently, I'm the COO of Sparkplug Agility. Um, growing up in the web design field, uh, went and spent some time as a designer, analyst, and really started developing a passion for why we build the things we built and why we do the processes that we do. Um, so I, therefore, Agile became very attractive to me in terms of how our system uh, influences so many of our behaviors. Uh, so really moved into the Agile space and spend a lot of time presently working with individual teams and clients trying to find uh, the most agile-minded ways of solving some of their organizational work challenges. And some of you may see me in some of our training courses uh, doing some production and some um, tech uh, support for you guys while we're there. And I really uh, love working with all of, our, all of our clients and all of our friends in the industry. Cool. All right. Thank you. And you also have a background that includes traditional project management. It does. And we met in Canada. We did. A long time ago uh, at a PMI event. And we're going to talk all about... Frederick Winslow Taylor. Yes, Philly boy, Frederick Taylor, who <laughs> people, including me, love to talk smack about. Um, and he is the father of scientific management. If you don't know who he is, you're probably turning this podcast off already. But if you do know who he is, I would like to tell you some things about him you probably don't know. Other than the fact that he was born in Philly, he also was a big tennis player and a big golfer. So uh, in the very first, what was it? Let's see. Uh, United States National Tennis Doubles Championship. He won with his partner. And he also was in the 1900 Summer Olympics. He finished fourth place in golf. And he's from Philly, so he's probably a big fan of gritty. See if I can mock up a picture of Frederick Taylor wearing like some gritty gear for the for the podcast when he posted. But uh, everything we do is based on him and every one of us has a job because of this man. So even if you don't like his work, he gave you a job. <laughs> You should <laughs> bow down in homage to him. Um, so what do, you, what do you think people know about Frederick Taylor? Like what's the most common things that people know about him? Wow. I, I think that's maybe part of why we're here today is the things that people know about him are maybe slight misconceptions about why he was doing what he was doing uh, and where the context and, and society was at the time that he was doing them. So when we think about Taylor, we really think about uh, extreme specialization of jobs, right? We think about those uh, industries and assembly lines where you have one job, you, you stamp the widget and you move it on to the next thing. Um, and then we think about Taylor in terms of management oversight and thinking about uh, everything has a stopwatch and measuring everything that, a, that an employee is doing. And there's an element of truth to both of those things. But when we really think about um, you know, some of the, the things about Taylor and what he was trying to do um, that are less well-known is where we really get into some of the interesting points of how it applies to our management practices today. Yeah, and I think with a few drinks in me in the right bar, I could probably make the case that he was an agilist. Um, 
a lot of what he For does. Time. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what he did ties back to the to a lot of the concepts. You know, I think it would be easy for me to say, like, well, you know, it's we're empirical in the work that we do. But the guy spent 30 years measuring people working. It wasn't like he was just like, do it this way. Like, he studied it. He absolutely did. And again, thinking about where things were at the time, we were a couple of decades into the Industrial Revolution. This idea of large-scale production was still very new. Uh, people were still working as individual artisans and in guilds, and and that was sort of the method of the, the individual craftsmen um, that businesses existed in. And, and they needed a better way to understand how this new structure of mass production was impacting how people worked day to day. I think that's really important because it's easy for us to talk smack about him now in the same way it's easy for us to mock people who like cook with lard or doctors who prescribe cigarettes to pregnant mothers who are anxious. Um, but the pro he had a problem he was trying to solve and he solved it very, very well in a very misguided way, but he solved it. Well, again, thinking about where where things were at the time, there's there's no doubt that he had a certain level of mistrust and low opinion of your average factory worker. Now, that being said, there was also some validity to some of the, the reasons why he wanted to learn more about their jobs and ways to help have management help them on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, back in, in those days, there was no uh, common understanding of how long it took to do any job, yeah. let alone the specific jobs that he was talking about. Everything was, you could almost argue the, the jobs were too big, right? When we think about um, and managing a, a, and, and too vague, no one really knew. And many managers at the time said it was impossible to know how long a job should take or what the ideal way of doing a particular job is. So where he really came in, like you said, for decades doing these studies, uh, really understanding how to best align workers with the jobs and compensate them in, for performance in a way that uh, no one had really been able to do before. Yeah, I want to, so there's one thing in there that you said that I keep jumping back and like I wish if I could go back in time and have lunch with this guy I think the one thing I'd want to try to figure out is why do you see this separation between or, or do you see the separation between the workers and the office people as like we're better than they are like I got this vibe that there's like this elitist which is totally Philly like he went to private school in Philly and I can see where he would be this elitist guy who looks at the pig iron lifter, I think his name was Schmidt, um, right. as just like the dumb strongman, which I don't know. I mean, maybe, but I, there's another part of me that thinks the way that he writes about them, it's not like he has low regard for them. He just believes that there honestly is a different kind of person. There's intellectuals and there's workers. Um, and, and part of what, We've talked about this before, you and I, but it surprised me when I read the book was when he was running the experiments, the workers were paid extra so that they weren't like, uh, they couldn't really do that thing where they were gaming the system. He was like, I'm going to pay you a lot of money. Just go as fast as you can. And, and even that's a half truth. They didn't go as fast as they can. Yeah. Part of the methods of separating, quote, the thinkers and the doers is identifying an ideal way to do something as simple as moving this pig iron. And we always think of Taylorism as slave driving work till you drop. But in that particular experiment, he also looked at things like scheduling breaks, things like the yeah. ideal work day that even 
if someone were to go in their own devices, they might go too fast and they might burn out quickly. So again, it's it's a misnomer to just think that, you know, it's all work and, and no balance. Um, his goal really was to create this harmony between the thinkers and the doers. And again, thinking about the education system at the time, right, we're talking potentially about literal illiterate people that are skilled at a physical labor and may not have either the time, the energy, or the ability to really think through the system of the organization that they're working in. And that's where I think Taylor tried to build to bridge that gap. And there was a belief that that idea of letting the workers figure it out, like they couldn't be trusted because of the unions and they were trying to be vague. So you couldn't be too prescriptive about it. You couldn't say these people had to do this much work. Um, that, But that's one of the things about this that's so interesting to me. It's like now we would say, well, the people that are going to do the job have to have the time and the freedom to sit down and think about the right way to do it and to run experiments. And he was solving that in a very different way. Like, you do the work, I'll do the thinking, I'll watch you, and I'll tell you. It's almost like a coach. And my understanding is that he intended for managers to act more like coaches or more specifically teachers, yeah. which, again, for the time was so dramatically different there's a reason why they call the management style back then drivers. Yeah. And, you know, we can go into the origins of that word many times over. <laughs> but at the end of the day, that's really the prevailing management philosophy. It wasn't even a philosophy. It was crack the whip harder. Yeah. Oh, and the whole, the whole thing, the thing about going through that that I just like knocked me right off my couch was that the idea that there's eight teachers for each employee – like whatever's wrong with you, there's a guy who's going to come down and fix the thing that you're doing wrong. And I just, after I, if I could go back in time, after I have lunch with Frederick Taylor, I want to get hired as a speed boss, just so I can go to a bar and be like, yeah, I'm a speed boss. I think that would be amazing. Talk about everyone standing around while one guy digs a ditch. Yes. Yeah. But so that that's really weird to me too, though, is that the this. That's one thing that I can't figure out is like, why would you, how would you get to a place where you think one human needs eight people telling them what to do to be efficient? Well, there, I mean, there are a few ways to look at it. One is having eight different bosses. Another is specialization within the management field that okay. you can have yeah. additional knowledge, right? If you're the speed boss, if you're the, I believe there was also like a, a even a personnel type boss, like yeah. a, a career coach, right? How is that any different than HR, frankly, today? Yeah, I guess you're right. Um, methods boss. I think there were people that were in charge of making sure that all of their tools were in good shape. Yeah. Or I guess if you were an athlete, you would have different coaches sure. for different aspects, diet, your, you know. I don't know, your elbow coach, like whatever. <laughs> People who sure. have expertise in different areas. Right. And, and again, so much of it goes back to how those managers create their relationship with the individual workers. I mean, it's so parallel to the experiences we have today is that relationship can make or break in any system how effective uh, production is and how happy the workers are. And that's one of the things that he was trying to fix too is soldiering, which is the idea. And this is like in, in the book that's just sort of explained that this is, in his opinion, the greatest threat that we face is that we've created an environment where people do a thing and when we ask them to do it better, we then pay them less for their improved output. And 
the only way that they can protect themselves and create safety for themselves is to not really let the boss know how much they can produce and to keep that hidden, uh, which I think we have that now in different ways, but there's plenty of places where that shows up, that, that lack of trust. It's lack of trust and decoupling of the worker from the results of the organization. Right, when yeah. we start thinking about mastery autonomy and purpose, right? What is your purpose if you're making widgets all day? How is that connected to the well-being of the company, but also the well-being of your society and, and your neighbors? Well, so and that I know metrics is something you wanted to talk about. So maybe you can kind of lead us into that part because that this is where like I'm I'm reading, I'm like, this is this guy's agile. And then I get to this part, I'm like, <laughs> oh, there it goes. Uh, it just fell apart. Well, it falls apart a little bit because he, he was very, very passionate about it. And yeah. sometimes when people are very passionate about something, they take it maybe a little too far. Um, he, he wasn't always recognizing of some of the, the psychology and interpersonal challenges um, of the time. But again, his problem was we didn't know what this data was, right? Yeah. So he, he certainly passed that with flying colors. But as we see, and, and what of Taylor's uh, methods have, have stuck over the years is that that speed or that stopwatch now becomes the number one thing to identify our success. And we have stopwatches in, in every aspect of, of every job, right? Depending on what that is, um, you can think about you know, velocity, you can think about um, you know, tickets closed, you can think about all those different types of things. But what it does is it separates that metric from did we do the right thing and did we do it in an effective and valuable way? And that, that does get lost. Well, and, and they've taken away a lot of the, like there's little things that I think he probably took for granted that you would do that people have abandoned, like the thing where, you know, your, your pay is not related to your output, mm -hmm. right? Because if, he, if he's running the experiments, he just wants to see what you can do. Um, but now everything is driven by output. Like that, that's one of the things that I think for us, if, if we're working at companies where a team's worth or a person's worth is based on their velocity or the number of things they're producing and they're not being given the breaks that you talked about or the space that they need. And it is just like grind them into the ground and get as much out of them as you can. I mean, that's going to lead exactly to the conditions he was facing when he got started. That's all true, though. He actually did do wage studies as well. And it's interesting that you talk about our compensation being based on our throughput because how many of us are salaried employees? Mm -hmm. Is our compensation based on our throughput? Yes, kind of. Um, so he did a lot of studies in terms of motivation and how w different wage structures change different people's um, throughput. So what we're talking about traditionally in, in our world is usually a day rate, right? You're paid for your time versus what he was an advocate for, which were variations on what we call piece rate, right? The number of pieces that you produce, right? So you make a widget, you get 10 cents. Um, but they found that there was a limit in, in motivation and balance with the, with the management employee relationship by just doing a straight piece rate. It started to get too expensive for the organization. But they found that some of these bonus system structures that Taylor and some of his um, you know, compatriots came up with um, could continue to encourage the, the worker to work at their maximum uh, efficiency, but maybe still, it's almost a, an, an old version of profit sharing, right? Mm -hmm. that, that the organization keeps some of that additional profit 
um, for themselves. And Taylor's argument was that this makes sense because the um, the variable cost of production goes down as the efficiency goes up. And so you have additional profit for the company that should be shared between the worker and the organization. See, and there's a part of me that wonders if that, I still question that all the time because if if I know, if my pay is based partially on like a bonus thing based on performance, then I'm going to do whatever I can to get that to get that performance bonus. And that might mean that I work myself to a point where I suffer, the quality suffers. Somewhere in here, the whole system is starting to fracture a little bit. Um, as opposed to creating a space, and maybe this goes back to the compensation thing, where a person is paid and given the freedom to do the job that they want to do, that they're called to do, um, as best they can. But I guess it's hard. It would be hard to make the argument that like my calling in life is to carry pig iron. I don't think people are going to get their emotional boost out of that, maybe. Well, Taylor did feel strongly in aligning jobs to people's aptitudes and abilities. So maybe you just weren't meant to load pig iron. <laughs> I think that that's, that's a fair bet. Um, <laughs> so what are the things that you see, you see in all this that are very uh, anti-agile? Like if you were going to load up the gun for the people that want to pull the trigger on Taylor and just talk smack about him. Oh. What have, you, what sure. have you got for that one? Because that seems sure. like a pretty easy, easy gun to That's, load. <laughs> it got me the, the layup there. Um, yeah. So, well, we talk about a specialization of skills. We get to the point where those skills become so minute and so specialized that we've taken the brain out of it, right? We've taken someone's problem-solving capabilities. We've taken someone's potentially joy for their job out of it because we've, we've just broken everything down so far that it's no longer... Um, a pleasant job to have. Right. Um, and along those same lines, because we're compensating people on these very individualistic production metrics, we've lost the uh, collaboration and the benefits of working together as a team and problem solving together um, because we really focus on that individual output. So thinking about Taylor really being focused on that individual throughput, um, we lost something in, in translation there. Yeah. Um, you know, those are those are certainly the big ones. Um, I, I can't say that he broke the relationship between managers and and workers because that was never his intent. His intent yeah. was um, really a, a harmony that didn't exist before. And certainly, you know, it, it feels like a like a difficult relationship the way we view it now. But it was the first step in creating uh, leadership versus driving management. Yeah, and that, and that's the thing where I feel like I wish. I had more context for that time period because it it seems like he is elitist in his view and sort of, I mean, from, from today's perspective, like, what the hell, dude? But for back then, you know, I don't know. It doesn't seem like from what I would expect that it would be that far off. Right. And even some of his contemporaries raised these issues. They raised the concerns that someone was being separated too far from their work as an artisan, right, or their, their work as a craftsman, um, that it really was all about the numbers. Um, there was actually a period, uh, I think it was right before World War One or right around World War One era, where federal contracts in certain areas of the Army and Navy, Navy were not allowed to do scientific management techniques, because they felt that it was so anti-worker. Wow. So it's really an interesting question. And, and even in their own time, people that were very nervous about how these methods were dehumanizing the yeah. individual worker and 
we see that may or may not have been Taylor's intent, but people that built on the work of Taylor then um, made conscious choices to try to bring uh, those human factors back into their management techniques. Yeah. I want to share a quote. Uh, and I have to <laughs> admit that a lot of the stuff that I'm quoting, I pulled from Wikipedia in addition to other research. But uh, Darwin, Max, and Freud make up the Trinity, often cited as the makers of the modern world. Marx would be taken out and replaced by Taylor if there were any justice. That's <laughs> Peter Drucker, who everybody loves to talk about. So yes. the guy had his fans. Um, and I found another article that was explaining that it was this pro the processes he'd come up with that allowed us to take farmers or unskilled mm -hmm. people and turn them into welders and shipbuilders in like three months or less. Because you Absolutely. could say, like, just do this thing this way. So there is definitely, there was benefit to that kind of a thing. It's just that now we're facing a different landscape and we have different kinds of problems. And I think hopefully we have the become smart enough to know that money is not the only thing that makes people get up in the morning. Absolutely. And we now know that having a better tie to the purposes of our organization and the having a shared purpose with our teammates is so much more valuable than something that we can just measure on an individual line item. Yeah. And really thinking about, um, you know, some of those, some of those practices and, and yeah, how they were intended versus how we, we have them today. Drucker is actually a very interesting um, study in itself because, you know, he starts talking about decentralizing uh, power. That's that's a big thing with Drucker, right? Being able to um, delegate down into the lowest area of the organization where it makes sense. And we think that that's at odds with Taylor, but it may not be as far at odds as we think because, you know, we think of Taylor as this big top-down management, but really even Taylor advocated for um, workers building new skills and being able to, sh to take on new roles that then gave them more autonomy in their individual decision-making as their skills increased. So thinking about your World War II analogy, right? You can yeah. take farmers and get them to build bombs, but over time, they're going to learn more and more skills and they're not going to just, you know, stamp the widget every time. They're going to have new things that they can do and bring, bring to the table. Um, and we forget that Taylor wanted that for people too. Yeah, that was one thing that I kind of, I got, I understand, I think why this would be this way, but I think that the impact of it after like, what, a hundred years is not what he was hoping for. But the idea that they wanted the people in the office to find the most efficient way and to teach it to the people that were doing the work. But if the people, because there was a, a lack of trust, just to set context for people that are listening, a lack of trust in this sort of artisan or like secret way that you do it by just watching someone else do it. You teach yourself as you go. Um, if you came up with a better way, you were supposed to suggest it to the people in the office. And if they deemed it valuable enough and sound enough, then they would adopt it. But um, I'm thinking if I'm one of the people in that office and you're like the pig iron person, I don't know if I'm going to listen to you or not because <laughs> you lift pig sure. iron and I think for a living. Well, and, and that's a really great point is these systems are only going to be as, as good as the, the values that the leadership brings. Yeah. Um, and if you have management that, again, is just coming out of this 
crack the whip driving mentality, it doesn't matter what Taylor or any other um, you know, system implementer does. They're, they're not going to think of those workers that way. And it took another, what, 40, 50 years or even yeah. longer to really think about that as a true partnership between leadership and folks on the ground. And that that's another aspect of this, too, is that he was a systems thinker. Like he I mean, he looked at it like one whole thing. It's not just this piece of work. It's all right. tied together. And the irony is when we start implementing some of his practices and we lose that view of the system and we lose the view of the values and principles, we actually make a less efficient system. Yeah. And so imagine, for those of you listening, that that you have a job where you go to a company and you try to help them adopt a better way of working, a way that is supposed to help people rise and do the best work they can and optimize the way they spend their time. And mostly they don't listen to you and then they fire you and you have to go try to do it somewhere else. That's most of us. And that's Frederick Taylor, too. He got fired everywhere he went. He did. (laughs) But he never stopped. I mean, and... The guy literally, I mean, if there's, I can't think of anybody else that ha, that would have possibly had as much of an impact on the work that everybody in technology and knowledge work and any kind of management. I mean, this guy gave Henry Gantt a job. I mean, like <laughs> all of us are working because of him. Um, that's I, for me, like, that's the thing I just wish people, I wish I had read the book earlier, one, huh? two. I wish that when people talked smack about him, that they would take a minute and just also acknowledge that, like, this guy's it's like the granddad of all of us. We wouldn't be here without him. Well, he definitely put into writing some of the things that um, you know, were necessary for, for um, manufacturing at the time, but he was built upon so quickly. Mm-hmm. And he'd ever actually coined the term scientific management. There were many people in the field at the time calling it all sorts of different things. And, and we really needed that, that common form. And I believe it was uh, Brandeis, who was a judge that was um, helping decide a, a wage dispute case with the unions that sort of landed on this term of scientific management for all of the different practices that Taylor and his contemporaries were doing. But over the next 50 years, that was continued to be built upon. I mean, Henry Ford being example number one, yeah. right? Except his focus was much more on the machines. Taylor didn't focus a lot on the machines. He focused well, a lot the on the people. people are the machines. <laughs> the resources are the machines, the people. But what he did do was try to eliminate variation in the system by making sure that everyone's tools were of equal quality. He was trying to reduce factors within the system that prevented someone from doing their best work. And Ford took that a step further, of course, with our knowledge of machines and assembly line. It's easy to lose sight of how all these things, a lot of them have still persisted and trickle into the work that we do. I feel like a lot of what we teach is what these people were teaching back then. It's just we're teaching it hopefully in a more humane way or a way that honors people a little better, I hope. Sure. There is an excellent book uh, on scientific management by Horace Dury that's a dissertation, um, both explaining the history of scientific management, but as well as criticisms from the day. So I'm always fascinated with that because I think it's really unfair, not just to Taylor, but to anybody, if we're reading something 50, 80, and now in this case, 100 years on from what they were trying to do, go back to 
when it was had. created, yeah. what they had, what their context was, what problems they were trying to solve. Um, a lot of these criticisms you know, were, were common to the day, and it was a really great um, sort of view into the future because there was even a quote in this book that said, you know, 50 years on when only the practices remain and none of the philosophy behind it has stayed, will Taylor be a good guy? And I'm thinking, Apparently wow. <laughs> even, <laughs> but even, even at the time, there was a recognition that, that there was a human tendency to put in the practices, yeah. and especially of command and control, because it, it makes us feel safe and it makes us feel like we're, we're in control of the system without a lot of that, you said, that human factor that yeah. you know, we really need to make it more effective. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. And the fact I, I keep getting like coming back to the idea that he spent thirty years studying people working. I mean, it wasn't like he solved it and moved on. He kept doing it, and kept doing it, and kept doing it. So, I think there's a part where even if you want to cancel him for a lot of the bad thing or things that we wouldn't agree with today, you can't disagree with the fact that the guy definitely put in the time and was dedicated and fierce about really understanding the best way. I mean, to me, like that's a lot different than saying like for every team in this organization, a point is this much work. I mean, sure. if you were going to spend 30 years staring at that and using, you know, actual flow metrics and then say, okay, this is what a point is. I don't know if I could argue with that. He was our original value stream mapper. Wow. That should be a t-shirt maybe for true project management geeks. <laughs> but at the end of the day, he was trying to reduce waste. Yeah. I mean, how many conversations have we had in the, the century since about waste reduction and identifying waste? And that's functionally what he did. It's just how it was applied that maybe didn't turn out the way that he had well, intended. It's also interesting that the, the thing that they were trying to fix, which was the idea of the people doing the work coming up with their own solutions, that that was perceived as a negative back then because it was protected, siloed information. And now, I mean, that's we're trying to get back to that. We're trying to say, like, no, let the team figure it out. So obviously the, the, the trust breakdown has shifted to the other side of something. Um because I can't, I would imagine that the people that came to it came to it with a positive intent. I would like to think that. Um, they just didn't trust the unions. Maybe it's just unions. We should just get rid of all the unions. <laughs> I think part of the, the practices that's very interesting is, um, you know, one example of one of the, the things they put into practice was this idea of instruction cards. And it was literally how to do a particular thing. And we think, wow, like talk about micromanagement. That sounds awful. Um, but in reading sort of the understanding of where these instruction cards exist, they didn't exist to lay a brick. Mm -hmm. They existed for what were very complex calculations around cutting metal and around uh, understanding the type of metal and um, the environments that they were in and the type of machines they were using and all this kind of thing. And it was so complex that these slide rules and um, instruction sheets were there to create something predictable and help the worker and safe um, and safe and safe too, yeah. absolutely um and i think that's where sometimes 
we get so caught up in this idea of efficiency that, oh, if, if giving an instruction card for this complex thing is great, then giving an instruction card for this easy thing is better. Yeah. And we see that throughout all of our practices as we end up splitting things into such small, minute details that we've created waste and created overhead in trying to manage them rather than, to your point, letting workers find the best way which at the macro level may actually be more effective and more efficient. Yeah. And I think that there's, I mean, I can, I can see how in my, in my head, how like if I work at a place and they're like, yeah, if you have this problem, we got somebody to help you. That problem, we got somebody to help you. Here's training. Here's instructions. We're going to do everything we can to help you. I mean, that sounds nice. Just didn't work out that way, in the long run. but but that I think that's maybe because it's that cargo cult thing. Like people took what was well intended and well defined and tried to like mimic it without knowing the why, and that's where we start down the sliding down the slope to what we have now. Absolutely, I mean, and you see that throughout management theory in the 20th century. Um, or another, you know, good buddy Deming. Um, talking about our you know, pl- total quality plan, do, study, act model, um, set up some uh, some theorems around. Uh, you know, they called it deadly diseases and obstacles to to success. And one of those obstacles, very well enumerated, was picking an example and mimicking it rather than coming up with your own solution. And I think, wow, oh, how many times? Spotify. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> exactly. How many times have we seen that? Oh, we're going to institute this model, yeah. and we to your we cargo cult it. We do the practices, but we don't really think about whether they're suitable for our environment, or the psychology of our people, or the skills of our people, or the relationships that our people have with uh, the purposes of our organization. Or yeah, or the environment, the collaborative environment we're trying to create. Because they, that's another thing about this that um, it's easy to miss is that the whole idea is that management and the people that are doing the labor, that they're like completely bound to one another. They can't exceed, neither one can succeed without the other. And they're supposed to be there to help and support one another. But like you just described, what's happened over time is that, that we've lost the thread, I think. Absolutely. And even in those wage studies, uh, scientific management was one of the first areas that compensated managers on the improvement and success of their employees. And that concept of a manager's success being related to the growth of their employees was a relatively new concept then as well. We think, how can we now in our world better connect management success to the things the teams are doing every day? Yeah, and that can be – I just read an article in the New York Times this weekend about uh, healthcare or nursing and how attempts to help these nonprofits that run hospitals become more efficient have resulted in – horrible conditions for doctors and nurses and patients. Um, but all, I mean, it starts out with good intent. It's just, we, we get so caught up in metrics of whatever it is to try to make ourselves look better that we stop thinking about people. Sure. Or we think that if the metric looks good, then we've built the right thing or we've done the right thing. And we sort of use those numbers as a substitute for maybe the tough thinking that we really need to do as an organization. So that's a really interesting, what you just said is really interesting to me. Like you might be hitting all the numbers, but I guess how many of us stop and ask the question like, okay, we checked all the boxes, but how is it wrong? 
you know, I wonder if, if people take enough time to look at it and try to just find the holes in their own system or if they just feel happy because everything's okay. It seems to be okay. You know, it's like the person that falls out of the window at 50 floors up and at 49 floors or so. Everything's fine so far. You know, <laughs> nothing bad yet. All greens. Yeah. Um, well, was okay. So what, what is something you would like people to know about Frederick Taylor or, or the work that he's done? kind of as a close out on this. Yeah, I, I think that we need to credit Taylor with the desire of improving conditions for workers and their relationship with management. That's something that we've completely lost over the years. Um, his, you know, albeit sometimes misguided, well-intended view of um, both understanding the people and understanding jobs, which was a brand new thing at the time. Um, and recognizing that metrics are still helpful. We don't want to throw metrics out or, or stop watches out, but They're if we don't answer. if we don't look at them within the context of our system or the context of our goals, then they're just numbers. Yeah. Cool. And I just hope people will read it. So I mean, I've been talking smack about the guy for years and I've read stuff about him, but it wasn't until a mentor of mine was recently like went off on him and was like, you know, I'm gonna go read about this and I actually and I when I was reading I was like this is pretty cool I mean a lot of it I don't know I was so excited to be able to talk to you about it because I don't know anybody else and you're like way over the top on the geek level with this stuff anyway but I don't know anybody <laughs> I meant that in a positive way I don't know anybody else I can talk to you about this stuff so I appreciate you making time for it for sure and and principles of scientific management by Taylor again I love reading things that were written at the time because we get the fuller perspective of what they were trying to accomplish. And that was written by Taylor himself. It's a quick read for yeah. those of you out there. It's only about 60 pages. And it's free like on that. a Kindle. It is. Um, yep. So, and I would also recommend the, uh, the scientific management. Um, I believe it's called a history and criticism by Horace Drury. Uh -huh. It was written, I believe around 1918. I will make sure to um, include a link so, to that as well. Um, that's a, a really great read as far as thinking about the intent of the founders of scientific management and also some of the challenges in getting it adopted. And in some ways you could almost replace the word scientific management with, with agility yes, absolutely. and have a lot of mind blowing moments. <laughs> <laughs> that would maybe be like a fun thing. Like, a, you know, is this scientific management or agile? You could just have just random statements in there and see who could, who could guess which one's right. Um, what if people want to get in touch with you and talk more about this stuff or learn more about all the work that you've done, learn, you know, kind of digging into this? Sure. Absolutely. Happy to talk with anyone. Um, I'm Christine, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-E at sparkplugagility.com. You can also find us through our website, sparkplugagility.com. And looking forward to hearing from you all. And just one more time, tell them what Sparkplug does. I want to make sure we give it a good plug. Sure, sure. We are a boutique agile consultancy. Uh, you may know us primarily for certified training uh, in the Scrum Alliance space, but we also do a lot of speaking, coaching, consulting engagements. Uh, I personally do a lot of individual and team level coaching. Um, we also do organizational consulting and just love helping people make their worlds better. Cool. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. This was fun. Thank you, Dave.